but I've come to realize that although you write the draft yourself and it's a solitary exercise, it really becomes more of a team effort and the book is so much better for it. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm Colin Mustful, host of the podcast, and today I am so happy to be joined by Adele Myers, author of The Tobacco Wives. I, I knew even from a young age that I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to write a novel someday. Adele Myers grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and has a journalism degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She currently works in advertising and lives in Brooklyn, New York, with her husband, son, and their rescue dog, Chipper. The Tobacco Wives is her first novel. Um, so I want to start with uh, a question about the the combination of elements in this novel, because it seems like there's there's this combination of oral history, documented history, journalism, advertising, and craft elements of fiction. Was it difficult for you to juggle all those different parts of the to, the book and balance them in order to create an engaging and sort of uh, effective narrative? I would say yes and no. I mean, I think um, you know the the book itself. A lot of it is based on my family history. And so some of the, you know, the stories that have been passed down from my grandparents and great grandparents and, you know, for my career, I mean, I've been in public relations and advertising for over 20 years. I've worked in that industry and I majored in journalism in college. So I think it really, the book um, tapped into, you know, various parts of my life and, you know, my life's work as well. Definitely, and and I wanted to to wanted to ask you more about that. Can you give us a little bit more about your background in advertising, and then and then how were you able to use that experience to write this fiction novel? Sure. So, I started out in public relations. Actually, I got an internship right out of college. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, and started working for a PR agency in New York City, and you know loved it. I mean, I was working with big brands and clients like, you know, Pizza Hut and Ethan Allen Furniture and um, Coors Brewing Company. And we were doing events with celebrities and press conferences. And there's a lot of writing in PR too. You know, I was writing, writing speeches, writing, you know, ad copy. Um, And then later in my career, actually went into working for an advertising agency, which is what I currently do. And there, you know, it's more about paid media, whereas with public relations, a lot of it's what you call earned media. So it's, you know, coming up with stories and ideas that 
media is going to want to cover versus purchasing the, you know, placement in uh, a television ad or a magazine on the advertising side. So I, you know, I brought a lot of that experience to bear when I delved into the advert, the role of advertising in, um, in the tobacco industry, because the tobacco companies were really among the, they were among the first to use advertising to drive public opinion and to shape attitudes and behavior. And, you know, back then, uh, and in my book, you know, in the forties, we didn't have the federal trade commission regulations that we do now. Um, and advertisers could pretty much, it was kind of a, the wild west, like they could say what they wanted and they didn't really have to back it up. So a lot of what's in the book is actually based on the reality of what went on. Well, I want to talk to you more about sort of how you transitioned from that to writing fiction. Um, but before I, we get too far into that, some of those personal details, I, why don't you tell us more about your main character, Maddie? Who, who is she and, and what role does she play in this story? Sure. So Maddie Sykes is a 15-year-old girl. She is an only child. She grows up in a you know, relatively um, lower socioeconomic, you know, um, state in a town in Western North Carolina. And her father is killed in World War II. And her mother, her mother basically has a breakdown um, after her father's death and, and in desperation drops Maddie off at her Aunt Etta's house in the fictional town of Brightleaf, North Carolina which is, is based on Winston-Salem and my time there. So Maddie is dropped off and she's not used to, you know, she visits her aunt every summer and helps her with sewing, but she's not used to being there during what's called the tobacco wives season. So this is the time of the summer where her aunt is working with the wives of the wealthy tobacco executives and uh, sewing gowns for them for the big galas and events during that time of year. So through a series of events, Maddie finds herself actually taking over for her aunt and temporarily living in the estate of the most, you know, influential tobacco wife, uh, Mrs. Mitzi Winston. And she soon begins to see, you know, I think when Maddie first arrives in town and she's around, you know, she meets Mitzi and some of these other women, she's she's just enamored with them. You know, they seem to have it all. Um, the setting is, you know, at the end of world war two. So there's still some shortages. The troops are still coming back. Um, and you know, these women seem to have it all. Uh, and then as Maddie becomes more drawn into their world, she realizes that it's, it's not as it seems that their lives are not as perfect as she thought they were. And also what's going on behind the scenes in the tobacco factories and with the workers and the way women are treated, that there's this ugliness behind all of the, you know, image um, that she at first was enamored with. Um, some, some reviewers have called it a coming of age novel. So I'm curious, was it a challenge for you to write from that point of view of 15-year-old Maddie? It, it was actually. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when I've, I've, I think I've rewritten this book like 
four times <laughs> and each time she's gotten older <laughs> because when I first started, she was, I think, 12. And then a couple of years later, when I, when I finally got an agent, she wanted me to age her up a couple of years so that she would have a more, she'd have more insight, right? Like the voice of a 12 year old is very different than the voice of a, a 15 year old. And then um, when I started working with my editor, she wanted her to be even a little more sophisticated. So that was, it was a challenge to go back through the whole novel and, you know, change, change her perspective and age her up a bit. Yeah, I can imagine. I Some of my own writing, I, you know, changed from first person to third person. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think readers who, who aren't familiar with the, the process of writing a novel, you make a, an interesting point that the story changes quite a bit through revisions. And um, yeah, you, sometimes you're telling it from a whole new perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, my title even changed three times wow. <laughs> the title of the book. Well, let's talk about your background in this history. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your grandmother? And, and I'm also curious, I think you wrote that your grandmother was a hairdresser for the Tobacco Wives. Why make Maddie a dressmaker? Yes. So, um, you know, the spark of the idea did come from my grandmother being a hairdresser. And although my other family members also um, lived in Winston Salem, lived and worked in Winston Salem, and so it was interesting because as I delved into the family history more, I I don't think I even realized how connected like every family member was. <laughs> and my other grandmother on the maternal side was was a seamstress, and she specialized in the evening wear and wedding gowns. But you know, I never met any of the so-called tobacco wives (laughs) through her, the stories that were handed down came from, from my other grandmother, the hairdresser. And what I really liked about using a seamstress instead of a hairdresser is, you know, at that time seems the um, dressmakers would come into the homes of the wealthy people. And I thought that that would give me a, a way to get Maddie inside the home and to also, you know, it's a whole process. It's not like, of, you know, fitting and, and, um, you know, trying it on. And, and I think I wanted to capture what I thought was interesting about the hairdresser dynamic. And, and that is the relationship between the employee and the employer in those situations becomes very intimate. I think the other thing that was in the back of my mind is that, you know, steel magnolias was, was, um, you know, a very successful uh, book and movie about, and it was all centered around a hairdresser's shop and these women. And so I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Sure. Well, I think it's, it's a good way to humanize your characters and, and bring the story, you know, give it a little more impact for the reader rather than just, you know, these facts and figures we know about what happened then. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything that surprised you and, how important is it to shed new light on what happened there in that, that time period with the tobacco industry and the exploitation and sort of deception that went on? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there were a few things that did surprise me, although when I researched them, I realized that they were public knowledge. 
So I, I think that a lot of what went on has been uncovered, but um, what surprised me were some of the personal stories that I heard about, you know, for instance, my grandfather, he worked in the cigarette factories um, at various times. And my father uh, during his teenage summers worked in the factories. And, you know, there's a, a part in the book where Maddie visits the factory and there's, there's, there are two, and there's one that's more open to the public and, or not the public, but, you know, is, is not private. And then there's one that's, um, locked up behind closed doors. There are armed guards, like all of that's true. And that only certain people could go in that factory. And the reason is that they were making reconstituted cigarettes there, which they call recon for short. And basically they would, um, in the, in the other factory, they would sweep up, they would take the floor sweepings, like bits of tobacco, broken cigarettes, dust, dirt, <laughs> what have you. And they would sweep it up and take it over to, to the, the secret factory and cook it up in these huge vats. And, you know, my, my grandfather, I guess, worked in that area at one time and the fumes from cooking, you know, this like slurry of tobacco waste <laughs> was so strong that he said that he had to go outside, like take breaks, like every 15 to 20 minutes. And like, they would literally be sick, like throw up and then kind of get some air, go back in. So the conditions, it was alarming to me to hear the specifics like that. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, we'll talk more, talk a little bit more about the tobacco wives and, and the importance maybe of giving them a voice in this story and in this history. Yes. So, um, one of the things that I thought was, was interesting and, you know, it's funny, this, this book, I would say started over 20 years ago as a short story, um, about these women. And I, you know, I think as a little girl growing up in North Carolina and feeling very proud of Winston-Salem and my family and all that they had built there, I, I myself idolized these women. Um, and then as I got older, you know, after moving to New York, after a lot of the, you know, the dangers of smoking became really apparent in the 90s, <clears throat> I, I thought I looked at them more critically and I I thought, you know, how much, how much power did they really have, you know? Um, and so I did a lot of research into, you know, women during the 1940s. And I, I think it was a, an interesting time. Um, and that's why I set the book right at the end of World War II, because, you know, while men were away at war, women had taken over their jobs in the factories. And for most of those women, it was the first time that they had been able to make their own money, that they, you know, had the self-esteem and the pride that comes with knowing that you can take care of yourself. And I wanted to juxtapose, you know, the female factory workers with the tobacco wives, because I realized that in some ways, although the tobacco wives were privileged and wealthy, they really had no real power. You know, they had influence through their husbands, but, you know, it was really frowned upon for women from a wealthy home to work. So they didn't get that. They didn't get that experience that I thought was so meaningful for these other women. Yeah. And I think that's, 
good just just to at least try and look at their perspective and, and emphasize em, empathize with that that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think your novel does a wonderful job of of doing that, um, showing us what they were and, and what they weren't. Mm-hmm. Hello, this is Colin Mustful, the founder of History Through Fiction and the host of this podcast. I hope you're enjoying the interview, and I want to thank you for listening. History Through Fiction is a small, independent press, and we'd love your support. You can support us and our authors by subscribing to this podcast, subscribing to our website, buying our books, asking your local library or bookstore to stock our books, or just by telling a friend about us. With your support, we can create more content like this and continue to bring important and entertaining historical stories into the world. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. You you mentioned that this started as a short story, um, so let's go back uh, into your background. Um, why did you write it initially, and then as you moved into the corporate world, into publicity and advertising, was it always uh, something that you knew you would do to, to write a novel, or how did that come about? I, I knew even from a young age that I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to write a novel someday. Um, you know, I think when I was in my teens and I, you know, there were a couple of books that I read that really made a big impact on me. Um, Maya Angelou's uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings was one of those. And I thought, okay, I want to do this, you know, at some point in my life. <laughs> and um, so I had, you know, I majored in journalism. I went into PR and advertising because, um, you know, it's hard to break out as a writer <laughs> and do that for a living. And and I liked those fields because they were very creative and I got to use my writing, you know, muscle, so to speak. And I took classes, um, I took a short story writing class at night um, shortly after moving to New York in the like mid nineties. And it was actually in one of those classes that I wrote, I wrote the first short story about these women and my writing teacher at the time, you know, she was giving me feedback and notes on it. And, and at the end she said, you know, I really think there's a longer piece there. I think, I think this may, there may be a novel here. And that planted the seed for me, you know, and I, um, I like to say it kind of germinated for many, many, many years. <laughs> um, and I, you know, for a while I focused on short stories and I just did it on the side as something that I enjoy. And, you know, I got married, I had a son and, you know, I've always loved writing, but that kind of took a back seat to the rest of my life and my career And then I would say about 10 years ago, I guess, um, my son was older, you know, I'd reached a certain point in my career and I really started to feel like I wanted, you know, I wanted to do this. Like it's something I'd always wanted to do. And I made a commitment to, to write the novel and, 
there were also a couple of key things that I think happened. Like I wrote an essay, a personal essay that was that I sent out and I had never had anything published. And I, I sent this out to a literary magazine called Literary Mama and they accepted it and they ran it. And I think that gave me a real boost of confidence. And then like people commented online about it and I was like, wow, okay. You know, people are responding to this. Um, and then I, you know, I made a commitment and I, I started uh, actually my writing teacher who read the first short story suggested this book. I think it's called right away. And it's, cause I had no idea what I was doing and <laughs> it, you know, was basically a book written by an author about her process. Mm -hmm. And so I found that really helpful to hear, you know, other people talk about how they approach, uh, their work. Yeah. Well, that, that's a wonderful story. And it's, I mean, that you stuck to that commitment and that you work through, you know, some of the ups and downs and the things about learning how to do it. Um, and to get that confidence is definitely, definitely helps a lot. Um, was the submission process challenging? And then even after that, the revision process, I mean, did you ever feel like it wasn't going to happen? Yes, <laughs> I did at different, at many junctures, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I worked on it over a number of years, kind of in between working and being a parent and, you know, wife and, and taking care of my mother who was not well in North Carolina. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like I was working on it every day, but I was steadily making progress. And I, I began to look for an agent. Um, I guess it was like 20, gosh, 2018, I believe. 2017, 2018. And I had, you know, what I felt was a good solid manuscript. Um, I mentioned before I had uh, the title of the book at the time was different. It was called Bright Leaf, which is the name of the town. And I started just like cold pitching agents. I did a lot of research um, online and I, uh, there's something called query tracker that I used where I, I did research on different, um, agents and you know who was interested in southern fiction historical fiction all of that and started pitching them and I, I actually got a few people who were interested initially which was great and i sent them the manuscript and then waited and i feel like if there's anything i think i i didn't realize going in is how much waiting there is in this uh in this business you know it's a lot about just sending out things, you know, and then waiting to hear. Sometimes you do hear, sometimes you don't. And, you know, I would say I probably pitched maybe 60 to 70 agents before I found my agent. And I, one of the things I did that I think was really helpful is I decided to really focus on my pitch and my pitch letter. And I found examples online of other like pitch letters that um, authors had written to secure an agent. And I spent a lot of time on that. And I also um, came up with the title, The Tobacco Wives. And it was really interesting because it, when I did that, I got a lot of interest, um, a lot more than I had been getting before. Well, yeah, there's definitely a technique to it, and sometimes it can be just a, a little change. Obviously, the title's a, a 
you know, a big change, but in the, in the, in the query letter, it's just going to be those mm-hmm. three words um, that can make the difference. Well, c- congratulations on sticking with it. And uh, <laughs> thank you. It is nice for the rest of us um, to hear that just, just to know that, that that's something that every writer goes through. Right. Right. But yeah. There were definitely many times where I thought it wasn't going to happen. And, you know, and I kept thinking that I was done with, you know, and then once I started working with the agent, she had a lot of great ideas and she was very collaborative. And I, you know, and I mentioned earlier that she suggested I age up the main character. So I really had to go back through and literally rewrite the book. So mm-hmm. it was like another over a year of rewriting before she felt it was ready to be submitted. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which was kind of, I mean, it was disheartening at first. I was like, oh my God, you know, seriously. And you know, I had not worked with an agent or an editor or anyone before. And, you know, now I realize it's customary, but, you know, they send you an editorial letter with detailed notes. And I think I got, a, it was like a 15 page document wow. with all the things that ideas she had or issues with it. And I was like, oh my God, what? <laughs> like, are you sure you like this? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've come to realize that that, you know, although you write the draft yourself and it's a solitary exercise, it really becomes more of a team effort. And the book is so much better for it. Definitely. Um, yeah. And well, then, yeah, I'm sorry, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention that um, once we were ready, she was ready to submit it to publishers for consideration. It was ready in March of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. Oh, no. <laughs> I know, I know. And I really, I was devastated. I mean, obviously devastated about what was going on in the world, much more than my book, but it did feel like I had lost my window to publish this. And, and you know, she was telling me that, I mean, obviously people are going to continue to read, but pe- everyone was so stressed out and things were so uncertain that a lot of people in publishing weren't reading. Like it was hard to read you know, and to find new work. And a lot of, you know, some of the editors who had young children, you know, they had their children at home. And so we just kind of sat on it for several months. And then she felt that in the fall, that there may be a window of time where it would be worth going out to, to, you know, some publishers. And that's what we did. And thankfully, you know, I got interest from a couple of different publishers at that time so well yeah you definitely had a, a lot of hoops and I can I, you know I can see the discouragement there and it required a lot of patience a lot of hard work but but you made it yes it's it's amazing <laughs> it's like it's surreal I kind of pinch myself every day I do want to jump back into the novel for a second um, sure early in the novel um, well this is going to be about uh, the setting and about the fictionalized place of Brightleaf. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from the novel. You write, we could calculate our distance from Brightleaf by the smell of the different tobacco varieties. When I rode in Aunt Etta's car, she left the windows down so I could learn our location by the scent of the fields. Now that's difficult for me because I'm talking to you now in February in Minnesota. And as I look out my window is a frozen landscape that's just white. 
Um, but that's just such a wonderful way, I think, to set us in the the setting. And mm-hmm. it's something that I can't really understand as someone who's never been around tobacco fields. Can you talk about where you grew up and, and how you were able to translate that into the novel? Sure, sure. I mean, I think um, I tend to, I think I tend to include a lot of, you know, sensory descriptions in my novel, in my work. Um, and the scent of smell, I think, is, is so powerful. And it can, um, you know, the nostalgia, the ability for it to kind of take you back in time. And so for me, a lot of those moments came from, you know, my own childhood, um, spending time in Winston-Salem. I actually grew up in Asheville, which was in the western part of the state. And, you know, I would make that drive with my parents, <laughs> that drive east. And so, you know, those literally came from my, you know, my summers with the window down. And, um, you know, I no one told me that we were, you know, no one taught me to judge by the smell of tobacco, but that came to me as a, as a way to, to bring to life, like just how, just how important it was. And, and also the love of it and the love of the land and the love of farming. And, you know, it's, um, and I, I hope I captured that in this book, the fact that people before they knew how dangerous cigarettes were, they were incredibly proud of, you know, what they had built. And I I remember talking to my father about this because it was just hard to believe. It's hard to believe in this day and age that people didn't know that how dangerous it was. And he said, no, you know, we really, everyone smoked every, you know, Hollywood star, every, um, everyone smoked and it was glamorous and it was, and it built the whole town of Winston-Salem and supported the state. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's tragic that on many levels, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, you bring out that sort of love of community and, and I mean, just how close knit the community was, but I think it happens throughout history, throughout different regions, whether it's coal or here in Minnesota, iron ore, you know, generations get set on one thing and that starts to define us. But over time, we just have to adapt. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you know, and I, that was also, that was a challenging part of the book, I think, for me, is to try to put myself in the mind of Mr. Winston and Dr. Hale and you know, the people who, who knew, who were beginning to learn how dangerous it was. And, you know, I really um, spent a lot of time looking at other, like, situations where, I mean, even things going on now, like the opioid crisis and, like, um, the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial, it's like, you know, at some point, it their business takes a turn and they realize that it's dangerous. And mm-hmm. how do they, how do they rationalize that? How do they deal with that or not deal with that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And, and that actually is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, Kristen Hamill calls your novel a story firmly grounded in the past that still feels powerfully resonant today. And what, what I actually thought of was when the pandemic did first start and world leaders came out and said, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm sure they were balancing those same issues 
you know, they didn't want to lock down the country and put people out of work. You know, they had to balance between what we know and what we think might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how does your story, you know, about this history resonate to what we're going through today? You know, that's interesting. I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought about it like that, actually, what you just described, but that's mm-hmm. a perfect example. I mean, I did think about the whole, you know, um, misinformation campaigns that have been going on. Um, and what uh, what's referred to in, in the marketing world is market shaping. So a lot of it's, it's like knowing what's coming or, you know, in the middle of a disaster like we were in with the pandemic, how do you shape the, um, the market or the audience and their views by getting out ahead of it? And that's what a lot of marketers do is, and that's what the, the um, tobacco companies did. You know, they used uh, doctors in the ads. Like before the negative science came out, they were already out there using doctors to say, you know, nine out of 10 physicians recommend camels or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that still, that still goes on. I mean, it's still going on today. Um, it's even happening with vaping and with uh, Juul. The, um, they have actually come under fire because they, um, you know, they claim to not be targeting young people, but the flavors uh, you know, the candied flavors of uh, vaping, um, I don't know what they call it, liquid, whatever it is, um, clearly, you know, those appeal to young people and their marketing also features, you know, young people. So, you know, I I think it's, yeah, go ahead. I think that's why it's so important to share stories like this that yes, we, we, some of those, you know, those facts have been revealed, um, but it still needs to reach a broader audience, which fiction often can do, but it's also mm-hmm. just a constant reminder for us that we're, you know, we're learning from history, but um, we never actually get there, it seems. Right. Yeah, it absolutely repeats itself. <laughs> So what are you working on now? Are you um, looking to do another fiction novel? Are you ready to go through that long process again? I am actually. I'm, I'm, work. You know, I'm working on a couple of concepts right now, and basically, I'm I'm in the early stages of researching. But I would like to to write another novel um, based in the South, and that has to do with another cover up situation. So that's that seems to be my my sweet spot of what I'm interested in. Yeah, well, great. Well, we will look forward to that. And congratulations on on this novel. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, I've been talking with Adele Myers, the author of Tobacco Wives. Thanks again, Adele. Thank you.
and also um was so was there anything that i lost my train of thought um no problem i'll edit that out um okay. hold on just a second 